This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about Republicans and impeachment, especially in the Senate. Will some abandon Trump? Will it be more than Mitt Romney? Joan Walsh will comment. Also later in the show, your Minnesota moment. Trump comes to Minneapolis on Thursday night. But first, the white power movement from Reagan to Trump. Trump Watch starts right now. We're still thinking about the terrorist attack in El Paso, where Patrick Cruzius killed 22 people at a Walmart and injured two dozen more. We're told that the shooter was a loner, obsessed by Mexicans, but like almost all of these attacks carried out by domestic terrorists, the El Paso killings have been treated as a single event. But Charleston, Charlottesville, Christchurch, El Paso, these attacks are connected. And for that, we turn to Kathleen Ballou. She writes for the New York Times op-ed page. She teaches history at the University of Chicago. She's been featured on Fresh Air and PBS Frontline. And she's the author of the book, Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback. Kathleen Ballou, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, all the attackers we're talking about have been described as loners, but you say these attacks are all connected. How? So this is a place where the history of the white power movement can really help us to understand what we're seeing in the present. And I say movement because we're talking about a coalition of people that included a lot of different belief systems, including Klan groups, neo-Nazi groups, skinheads, and other activists. And it also included a lot of different kinds of people, people of both genders, people who lived in rural, urban, and suburban places, people across class and educational backgrounds. Um, And they came together in a movement with one another in the late 1970s, using the aftermath of the Vietnam War to sort of coalesce around common narratives. And one of the key strategies that really brought this movement together was a thing called leaderless resistance. Now, that's pretty easy to understand now in the post-9-11 world because it's essentially cell-style terror, the idea that a few people can work um, in a cell without direct communication with other cells and without direct orders from leadership in the movement, but that all of these cells can be coordinated in action. Cells can be anything from one to, say, 12 people. Um, And this strategy was implemented sort of to stymie prosecution and infiltration efforts. But there's been a much larger and, I would argue, more damaging legacy of the strategy of leaderless resistance, which is that it's effectively erased this entire movement as a movement. So what we see instead are a series of stories about lone wolf attackers, acts of violence that are inexplicable and unrelated to each other, We get narratives about perhaps mental illness or personal animus or something. And we miss the very political, very deliberate meaning of this violence, which which comes from understanding it as interconnected. And what is the larger goal of all the attackers in these terrorist incidents? One thing that's really important to understand about the white power movement is that within this movement, the end goal is not the act of mass violence itself. The violence is supposed to be a political action that will work, these activists believe, to awaken other white people to the cause 
and bring people into the movement. These acts of mass violence are meant to incite a broader race war. But aren't these people, the most recent ones at least, isolated loners? Dylan Roof, for instance, the Charleston killer, didn't go to meetings. As far as we know, did not was not a member of an organization. And as far as we know, neither did the accused El Paso killer. Yeah, the interesting thing that's happening now is that this movement, which has been using the Internet and other computer technologies for a very long time, since the early 1980s, has now reached a level of sort of computer mobilization that is bypassing some of the ways that social relationships used to be very important to this movement for recruitment of new people. So Dylan Roof, as you say, was a loner who didn't have real-life connections with other activists. Nevertheless, it's really clear that he did have connections that meant a great deal to him with this earlier history of white power activism. And the thing that I always think of is the photograph of Roof wearing a Rhodesian flag patch. So Rhodesia, for listeners who might not be aware, uh, Rhodesia was Zimbabwe before um, a revolution changed it from a minority rule government of white people in power to a more democratic system, which is now Zimbabwe. But Rhodesia, this all happened before Dylan Roof was born. This is an old, old issue for white power activists. But it has huge meaning within that movement. And the fact that he chooses that as an identifier when there have been so many other more recent flashpoints that he might have chosen is a really clear indicator that he is in communication with other activists and that he does sort of see himself as part of this longer trajectory of of action. These individuals are called white nationalists, but you say that the nation at the heart of white nationalism is not the United States. What is it? It's important to call this the white power movement because white nationalism makes people think of something much less radical. People think that that white nationalism is just sort of overzealous patriotism or injecting whiteness or shoring up whiteness within the body politic of the United States. But the nation at the heart of white nationalism is the Aryan nation. It's imagined as a transnational polity of white people that could be brought together into either a white homeland or eventually kind of an all-white world. Uh, that's an inherently radical and violent project that, that is fundamentally opposed to the interests of the United States. Of course, it's crazy to think that a white power uprising, even by heavily armed violent groups could overthrow the United States government. How exactly do they imagine they could do this? This is the million-dollar question, and this is why the Turner Diaries is so important. The Turner Diaries is a dystopian novel that uh, first appeared in Serial in the late 1970s in a prominent white power magazine and then was collected into a a paperback. Um, And the Turner Diaries lays out the path through which this seemingly impossible thing could happen. And in the book, they describe it as a gnat trying to assassinate an elephant. In other words, how could a fringe movement hope to take down the most militarized superstate in world history? And what they lay out is essentially guerrilla warfare in which acts of violence and sabotage are meant to destabilize power and awaken other white people such that they can eventually tip the balance and achieve an all-white world. Now, for those who have read the Turner Diaries, it is a deeply disturbing but not particularly graceful read, but it's, it's, it's enormously important to the movement precisely because it answers this 
question. It creates the imaginary through which people can envision how this might work. Um, and we can see how it's so important because of its enormous saturation in white power activist circles. It's still cited and used very heavily today. Its language is still used to frame what activists are doing. And in the period that I look at in the 1980s and 90s, it shows up everywhere. It's in bookstores in South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. Um, it, it's kept in stacks of 20 and 30 copies in the bunkhouses of paramilitary training facilities. It's all over the place. And what would you say was uh, the biggest success of the white power movement over the last 50 years? The, the largest and most successful example of an act of mass violence meant to awaken people to the movement is the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Um, now, we have a public narrative of that bombing as another of these lone wolf events. Occasionally, we see a more complex story that involves co-conspirators, um, but usually it's only the people who are tried with Timothy McVeigh. So we're talking about a group of three or four people. The reason that we understand it that way is that there was a huge and very unsuccessful and embarrassing seditious conspiracy trial a few years earlier in 1987-88 in which the federal government attempted a large-scale prosecution of white power activists and came up with acquittals. Um, the trial was hugely embarrassing for the federal government. And in its aftermath, there was a decision made that these crimes would be investigated not as part of a movement, but only as individuals. I think the language was they would make no attempt to tie the crimes to a broader movement. So that's the policy in place at the moment of the Oklahoma City bombing. So from the investigation to the trial, everything is limited by that, that piece of decision-making, such that there's never an investigation, much less sort of a coherent change in public understanding that this is the work of a movement. Um, but I spend a full chapter in the book talking about how deeply Timothy McVeigh was immersed in this movement, um, both through social collections, uh, connections and his own beliefs, and how this is really clearly an act of white power violence. You've shown us in your book, Bring the War Home, how the historical roots of this white power movement go back to the 70s and the 80s. Is there anything new about the recent attacks, say, El Paso or Charleston? Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, this movement has been online since the early 1980s and in many ways pioneered social network activism before the rest of us had even heard of something like Facebook. Um, their early message boards were posting things like, um, you know, assassination lists and targets, but also things like recipes and personal ads. So this is a deeply imbricated site of social network activism from the beginning. But what we see now is as those social network spaces have expanded and become um, more sophisticated, these attackers are using things like going viral and using things like the underside of the Internet to connect with one another, to organize, and also to kind of pave the way to future violence. But there's a clear change from the earlier manifestos to the more recent ones that they're starting to contain more and more tactical instruction for future actors. So the latest one in El Paso had information about ammunition, target selection, ear protection, all kinds of things that are in there so that future attackers can use that information to carry out additional violence. That kind of direct use of the manifesto as a messaging tool, I think, is, is new. Let's talk about Donald Trump's place in the white power movement. 
The El Paso Killer's manifesto quoted Trump extensively about an invasion from Mexico, but your history and analysis suggests a different way of understanding Trump's role in white nationalist violence. There are a few different things that are important to understand. One is that the last time this movement turned violent was not under a leftist government. The last time this movement declared war and carried out assassinations and stole military weapons and began a cycle of paramilitary training was in the second term of the Reagan administration, when arguably they stood to benefit from a lot of the policy coming down from the federal government. So the idea that because there's a sympathetic executive, we will see a reduction in this kind of activism and violence um, simply doesn't hold true in the historical record. The other thing that's important to understand is that this kind of a social movement is organized across a I guess we could think of it as a spectrum of sort of intensiveness. So if you think about a series of concentric circles, what we're talking about in the period that I study is a very small number of people, 10 to 25,000 people in that middle circle who live and breathe this movement. Those are the people who might become violent and a whole bunch of other people who just have their entire lives in this movement. They attend white power churches. They pick each other up from the airport. They provide childcare to one another. They get their marital counseling in the movement. Often they live in communities that are entirely within the movement. Outside of that, there's another 150,000 people who aren't that deeply involved, but who regularly attend rallies, purchase the newspapers, send contributions, and do stuff like that. Outside of that, there's another 450,000 people. And those people don't themselves buy the newspapers, but they regularly read the newspapers. Now, this is where we have to get a little bit more you have to imagine the next circle, which is people who would never themselves read something that says official newspaper of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, but who might agree with some of the ideas in them, um, especially if they are presented by a friend or if they come to them from someone they trust. That outer, more diffuse circle um, is a place where there is a whole bunch of people who are talking about invasion in, in the current moment, who are talking about all kinds of other racist ideas that that have consequences for people in this movement and beyond. So I think what we need to do is really understand how ideas travel from one place to the other across history. Um, I would also just say that my colleagues uh, who study the early 20th century would tell you that this invasion language certainly isn't new and that we have a long history of thinking about immigrants as, as invading the nation. And there's a lot that history can tell us about strategies that have and have not worked to sort of overcome that idea. So far, we've been talking about men. Is there any place for women in the white power movement or are they just wives and mothers? This is the biggest surprise to me from the story because I thought I was going to be writing about paramilitary masculinity. And the thing that, that appeared in the archives is this intense and very deep network of women's relationships that sustains this activism. Now, the women in this movement serve a really important symbolic role. And you can, you can think about this as simply for activists in the white power movement, many issues that that people understand as kind of just classic conservatism for these activists come down to preservation of the race through the reproduction of white children. So for instance, opposing immigration in the white power movement has to do with the number of white babies versus the number of other babies. 
similarly opposing abortion, opposing gay rights, opposing feminism. In white power discourse, all of this is tied to reproduction and the birth of white children. So, so there's a hugely important symbolic role for women, but there's also a material role that women undertook that others have not always seen or taken seriously. Women in the white power movement were doing enormous performative activism in sort of vouching for their husband's credibility and good character. Um, they ran their own quarterlies. They did coupon drives. They did campaigns to support uh, the birth of white children within their own communities. They even created tourist sites where people could go and visit uh, the places where the people that they call white Aryan martyrs had been killed by the federal government. And beyond all of that, if you want to see this social movement, you have to look at women because women are how you can tell that these groups are interconnected. Uh, white power shows up for a very long time as an array of seemingly disconnected forces. But if you look at the actual people who are involved, what you see is this person's daughter married the leader of that group. These two sisters married these two brothers and cemented an alliance between those groups. And women are how you can sort of see how this all worked. And there's a Christian element here, too, isn't there? What, what's the relationship between white power and Christian identity? Christian identity is a political theology that became very, very important to this movement in the period that I study and is still around today. Christian identity is the idea that white people are the true chosen people of God and that everyone else, all other races and ethnicities, are descended either from Satan or from animals, depending on uh, the doctrine that you're following. And Christian identity is very similar to kind of the broader evangelical groundswell we see in the 1980s, not just on the far fringe, but in kind of mainstream conservative circles. But evangelicals have the rapture, which is the idea that they will be transported peacefully to heaven before the apocalypse. Christian identity says there is no rapture. There, that people who believe in this will have to survive the end of days and that they must take up arms to clear the world of non-white people before Christ can return. So what that does is transform this entire uh, political and ideological belief system around white reproduction into a holy war, because now it is a project of faith for these activists to take up arms and engage in race war. Last question. You worked on this book, Bring the War Home, for 10 years. Tell us about your research. It's, it's a scary topic. It is. And, you know, of course, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to get the story out. But I, I, it's been really an uh, intense experience to see it moving into the center of public debate in, in this way over the last few years. The book is based on extensive archival work, as you say, over 10 years. Um, I have three major ephemera collections from the white power movement that include their published and unpublished writings and drawings. Um, and then I also used a lot of declassified government information um, from using the FOIA process from the FBI, the ATF, and elsewhere. And then newspaper searches in the United States and um, in Mexico and Nicaragua, because I have one chapter deals with mercenary soldiers who go to Nicaragua and other places in Central America to fight communism, quote unquote. It's really interesting how much this movement produced. And the three major archives I look at from the white power movement are very different in character. One was compiled by a journalist, one by an archivist who sent around a questionnaire to the groups and said, you know, send me any materials you have lying around. 
and one by participant observers who pretended to be part of the group and then just picked up materials as they attended meetings. Significantly, all three of those places have basically the same materials. So I do have sort of a sense of coverage of what was going on in this time for these activists. Kathleen Ballou's book is Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback, and it's indispensable to understanding what's going on right now. Kathleen, thank you for your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Trump comes to Minneapolis on Thursday night. He'll be downtown at Target Center. That's where the Timberwolves play. It has 20,000 seats. Trump usually holds his rallies in red areas that, you know, voted overwhelmingly for him. So scheduling one in the deep blue bastion of Minneapolis is an unusual move. Minneapolis is represented in Congress by Ilhan Omar. She won the district last year with 78% of the vote. Facing the news of Trump coming to town, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, said, quote, his message of hatred will never be welcome in Minneapolis, close quote. Trump dreams that he could win Minnesota in 2020. That's because he lost to Hillary by only 1.5%. But Democrats won both Senate seats and the governorship. And since Trump took office, his net approval in Minnesota has decreased by 14 percentage points. Today, his approval rating in the state is 11 points underwater. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this program. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The big question about impeachment is not the House. There now seems to probably be enough votes there to pass at least one article of impeachment. The question is about Republicans, especially in the Senate. Will some abandon Trump? Will it be more than Mitt Romney? For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's, of course, national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst for CNN. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, maybe it's too early to be counting heads in the Senate, but bear with me for a minute here. Of course, it takes two-thirds of the Senate, 67 votes, to remove a president from office. That means 20 Republican votes are needed in addition to all the Democrats and independents. And, of course, that seems impossible. But maybe some Republicans will respond to evidence about Trump's crimes and misdemeanors. Former Republican Senator Jeff Flake said he thinks at least 35 Republican senators would vote to remove Trump from office if, this is a big if, they could vote in private. Of course, the vote won't be in private, so... You know, I guess I have been cautioned by various people not to try to handicap this right away. I mean, I wrote a piece last week saying that the Republicans would go down with Trump. 
I stand by it. And yet, at the same time, we have just seen the most horrific allegations just in the last 24 hours. So while on the one hand, you know, in your intro, you said Mitt Rom- only, maybe, maybe only Mitt Romney uh, would vote to impeach. Well, I don't think we can even count on Mitt Romney. On the other hand, self-interest gets involved here. I don't, I don't really want to say that, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of integrity there, but self-interest gets involved. And we've seen a swing in the public opinion polls uh, in the last uh, week or so. Uh, Chuck Grassley has come out and said the whistleblower should be protected. Now, these are this is a very low bar. A whistleblower should be protected. Hello. But <laughs> there are other people joining Trump in trashing the whistleblower and calling him a spy and, you know, calling for his prosecution, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a few signs of movement. And I, I, I think it's important not to only judge impeachment in terms of whether and how many Republicans go along. It would be lovely to remove him, but I think finally Democrats have realized, and I've thought this for a while, that it's not something that you do only if you can get Republican votes. It's something that you do if you if it's if the evidence brings you there. So I think it's important not to not to handicap this too early. If the House votes to impeach him, it will certainly matter. How many Republicans in Congress are supporting Trump's suggestion on Monday that Adam Schiff, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, be charged with treason? How many are supporting Trump's statement that his removal from office would lead to a civil war? You know, Republican senators, uh, at least, and very few in the House, to be honest, they're not following him to crazy town. I'm not saying they're going to turn against him, but... You know, they really are stopping short of crazy town so far. In The Nation, you pointed out that the Republicans have their own special language for describing Trump's crimes. People have called it inappropriate. People have called it worrisome. I mean, inappropriate is, you know, when your child fails to say thank you. It's beyond inappropriate. And, you know, Ben Sass calls it troubling. I don't know where they get these euphemisms for for mild expressions of concern. Today, Republicans talk about what Trump is doing is troubling and inappropriate. Just want to remind uh, our listeners that the famous Lindsey Graham, who you've talked about, during the campaign called uh, Donald Trump, quote, a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot, close quote. He also called him a kook crazy and said he was a man unfit for office. Ted Cruz called Trump a, quote, pathological liar who was, quote, utterly immoral. And Mick Mulvaney, the former Republican Congress, who is now Trump's chief of staff, called Trump a, quote, terrible human being who has made, quote, disgusting and indefensible comments about women. Mick Mulvaney, hasn't his name come up in the context of the whistleblower report? He apparently is the person who acted on, we believe, the president's direction and insisted on withholding the military aid to Ukraine. So the quid or the quo, I'm not sure which (laughs) is which, uh, in in this whole matter. So yes, he acted on one of the president's historically most corrupt demands after after saying that. I mean, I don't know how these people live with themselves. I I can't and I don't know how 
uh, you know, tax cuts and uh, right-wing judges are enough, but I guess, I guess they are. These are also people who profess to be Christians. I mean, uh, I don't believe in hell, but they're supposed to. Uh, you know, I don't know how they sleep. I don't know how they sleep. You said earlier that Republicans in Congress won't abandon Trump for moral reasons, for the right reasons, but they might do it for political reasons if their own re-elections were in danger. Uh, now it's time for another episode of Alternate Scenario Theater. How about this one? Mitch McConnell concludes he could lose his majority in the Senate if Trump remains at the head of the ticket next year. The Democrats could win the three Senate seats they need to take control of the Senate. Maybe they could win Maine, Arizona, and Colorado, maybe even Kentucky. And Mitch McConnell concludes that if Trump were to step down like Nixon and Pence became president and then Pence ran as the incumbent, Republicans would do better. But, you ask, why would Trump step down? He'd do it in exchange like Nixon, for a pardon for him and his family. How do you like this episode of Alternative Scenario Theater? I think it's believable. I mean, I you know, Mitch, Mitch McConnell is a survivor who can do the math. I don't like him, but those two things are fair to say about him. So if, if he can, and, you know, they do a lot of polling, if he gets polling data, especially about his own race, but also Collins in Maine and Cory Gardner in, in Colorado, and Martha McSally in Arizona for sure are vulnerable. If he really gets polling that he could lose his majority, it is possible that he walks over and, and, and tells the president that and that Mike Pence offers a pardon. I'm not sure it gets them out of uh, a jam because, you know, Mike Pence has the charisma of a possum. So the <laughs> idea that Mike Pence will somehow save them, will cruise to victory, will carry a lot of folks on his uh, little coattails. I don't I don't see that scenario. So you have to factor that in too, that, that, you know, Mitch McConnell knows that Pence is not necessarily a superhero, but, but, but he might be better than Trump. But, you know, if that happens, he can still be prosecuted by the state of New York. And I, I see our attorney general, Letitia James, as being a person who, who would go for that. This whole scenario may seem unlikely to us, but I note that Trump has been thinking about Pence. Please remind us what Trump said about Pence in that otherwise pretty incoherent press conference he gave uh, last week. He said something like, hey, don't forget, look at some of VP Pence's conversations, too. He's had conversations uh, re regarding Ukraine and with, and with Ukrainian officials. So, so right. I mean, he, if there's dirt on Mike Pence, and I'm sure there is, you know, given the way, the adoring way he looks at Trump, I'm sure he does anything he asks him to do. If there's dirt on, on Pence, Trump has it. So it could get very dirty. I mean, these are dirty people who are willing to go to unbelievable depths to save themselves. And so, I, I mean, I really look forward to the circular firing squad. I, I really do. If that circular firing squad acts quickly enough, who becomes president if we don't have either Trump or Pence? Uh, say hello to President Pelosi. So from your mouth to God's ear, uh, that, that would be wonderful. I'm sure Hillary Clinton would, would really enjoy that one. We get our first female president after all. Last question. Let's assume the Republicans stick with Trump to the bitter end. They prevent a conviction in the Senate and Trump runs as their leader in November 2020. What are the chances this could be one of those 
elections where the incumbent party suffers a massive defeat across the board, not just for the White House, but in both houses of Congress and farther down the ticket, what we call a watershed election. I think it's possible. I mean, I really think given how much, again, I don't want to get us to get ahead of ourselves, but given how much public opinion has changed in the last week, even among Republicans, a quarter of Republicans believe there should at least be an impeachment inquiry, not that they necessarily think he should be gone. But but the, the changes with Republicans and independents have been amazing. So if things continue to accelerate, if we continue to have more revelations, which I think we will, you know, I think an old journalism adage is scoops beget scoops. And, and you know, the more people who are being burned and hung out to dry and, and you know, some of the decent career people who, who are still there, whether in justice or in the State Department, I believe we will see more revelations. And so if they protect him. Uh, I think we could see a watershed election, but that's, again, I think people have to just work incredibly hard. Uh, and you know how I feel about these state house races. One of my big concerns is that all the attention to the 2020 presidential election is, is starving some of these state house races for cash. So that's my pitch to people. Don't forget the state houses. They really matter. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.